6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 20 through 23. Isaiah is a fabulous book. Isaiah is not only the largest of the prophets in, the, in size, there is a term you'll hear bandied about called the major prophets and the minor prophets, and that's a tragic term in the sense that it only simply means that the five major prophetical books are larger in size. Some of the so-called mi- the 12 minor prophets are among the most fascinating and certainly not in any way secondary. And so to the beginning uh, Bible student, it's sort of a strange nomenclature. But in any case, the largest of the major prophets, the biggest prophetic book, of course, is Isaiah. Isaiah, unlike some of the other prophets that came from the rural country or a modest background, Isaiah was quite different. Isaiah had access to the king. He was at court. He is a, a very, very senior person. And he also is incredibly eloquent. He had the largest vocabulary of any of the writers in the Old Testament. And uh, we even can see that in the English as he gets into it. His ability to express himself uh, emerges quite clearly, even in the translation. Of course, there's always something lost, but uh, even in the English, you clearly see his articulate uh, skill. Now, this is somewhat by way of review. Isaiah, of course, consists of 66 books. And just to dismiss right up front something that you probably have heard about, is Isaiah is one book written by one guy. There are all kinds of characters that write all kinds of books that are very nicely bound and with lots of fancy editing that are wrong. There are those that try to sell you the so-called Deutero-Isaiah theory. And we went into this some detail, but just by way of review, let me give you a shortcut. You can actually destroy the arguments of the Deutero-Isaiah on scholastic grounds But you and I, as part of a family here, I suspect, have better things to do than to spend hours in a library going over dusty, dry theological books. The shortcut, if you want to cut that all out, is to remember John 12. Because in the middle of John 12, he quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and says of those two verses, that same Isaiah said again. In other words, the Gospel of John in chapter 12, verses 39, 40, 41, right in that area, totally destroy. If you're going to believe in two Isaiahs, you've got to disbelieve John, and if you start getting into those kinds of problems, you've got bigger problems than who wrote Isaiah. So we'll leave it at that. But the point is, One of the exciting things, and the main theme as we go through some of these things, yes, we'll get little tidbits and insights, that's great, but the real burden that I have for you is to recognize the integrity of these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years and yet evidencing clearly 
a singular architecture, a singular design. And I don't simply mean that there's a theme from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 of the Messiah and all that. That's certainly true, but I mean to go far beyond that. I'm going to suggest to you for your consideration and your own uh, exploration that every name, every comma, so to speak, every number, every detail in the original is there by design. And one of the breathtaking discoveries that I'm anxious to somehow share with you as we go through these things is to recognize evidences of that. The use of idiom, even though these writers, these 40 people who penned these 66 books, came from amazingly different backgrounds, and their penmanship spanned thousands of years, still you'll discover the subtleties of the text are engineered supernaturally. So the first premise that I attempt to convey to you is that it's a message system. It has integrity of design. Secondly, that that design demonstrably emerges from outside our time domain. The source of this book was capable and did write history before it happened. We'll see that in Isaiah, we see that elsewhere. So those are the main ideas. So as we go through and we pick out some things to highlight, the method behind my, my editing, so to speak, or the selection of the things I want to highlight, are those that will tend to substantiate that rather extreme viewpoint. Those of you taking notes, I want to remind you once again, as I have for, what, almost 20 years, you put in the upper right-hand corner of your scratch pad, Acts 1711 in which uh, Luke reminds you not to believe anything Chuck Missler tells you, but to prove those things yourself. Accept it with all readiness of mind, but search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. So we're in Isaiah. A couple of structural things to mention. Isaiah does have a stylistic change of pace in what we call chapter 40 onwards. In other words, the first 39 chapters are one style, and we get to chapter 40 on, he shifts his emphasis and his style of writing. And that's what gives rise to some of these weird ideas. But the point is, clearly, he, he becomes even more messianic. If you study Isaiah, there's thousands of examples of integrity of the design of the book itself. But I'm sparing you all that. But be sensitive to the fact that the first 35 chapters are fairly heavy. And we're in that. We're, I think we're picking, if I, my memory serves me right, we're at about chapter 20. And we'll jump in in a minute. But the point is, we're in the first 35 chapters, which are heavy judgment kinds of chapters. We're going over that rather lightly, just pausing for certain little nuggets. Isaiah, even in these heavy chapters, he has an amazing sense of relief, because we're right in the middle of some of these dark, grim judgment pronunciations. He drops, in the middle of that, a treasure. An amazing, phenomenal insight that makes it fun, that sort of sustains us through what to us is kind of heavy stuff both in subject matter and much of it had to do with local applications long past. Except be careful. One of the things we discover in the Scripture and especially in Isaiah, that even when he appears to be talking towards a local immediate situation, by careful examination we discover more often than not it has what's called a double reference. It refers to something locally, but it also, the scope of the language becomes more cosmic, more global, broader. And so we'll be sensitive to that. 
And just to give you a glimpse ahead, there are four chapters that separate the two halves, if you will. Some people divide it into two pieces, and some people say three. What they say three, they're reading. There's a four-chapter historical group. Uh, as I recall, it's uh, 36, 7, 8, and 9. Those four chapters are about Hezekiah and the, and the Assyrian invasion, and they're, they're analogous to certain passages in Second Chronicles. But there's four chapters narrative. Then we, when we get to chapter 40 on, fasten your seatbelts because Isaiah really goes at it. So in any case, we last time when we were in Isaiah, we were in Isaiah 19. We used that as a point of departure to explore rather speculatively some conjectures about the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge and what have you. At this point, though, it's appropriate, I think, to return to the sounder basis, namely Isaiah text directly, and if my notes are correct and so forth, uh, we were beginning chapter 20. We're entering a series of chapters. They're fairly short. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah, and it is one of my ambitions to finish the 66 books before the rapture occurs. And so in order to spend some time on what I consider the more interesting portions, we need to budget this a little bit so we'll move rather lightly over passages that are fruitful, but, you know, we'll just move along. So chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, now the word Tartan there is a title meaning commander-in-chief, incidentally. This corresponds to Second Kings 18 to give you a rough reference here. But anyway, in the year that the Tartan came into Ashdod, when Sargon was the king of Assyria, sent him, and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spoke the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, and by the way, Isaiah was the son of Amos, but nothing to do with Amos the prophet. Spelled differently, different guy, no relation. But just don't jump to the conclusion there is a relationship between Isaiah and the prophet Amos. Different guy. In any case, he says, go. <laughs> and by the way, those of you that feel called to certain ministries, count your blessings that you didn't get Isaiah's, because I want you to notice what he's called upon to do. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Yeah, whoa, a streaker for God, huh? Yeah. And the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years, <laughs> for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation of Egypt and their glory. And the inhabitant of this coastland shall say in that day, Behold, such was our expectation, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. How shall we escape? Now, that's all there is, a nice little short chapter, but I don't have anything to add. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are commentators that make the point that for Isaiah to go barefoot in the language might mean that he wasn't, wasn't bare naked, but he simply shed his mantle of rank. And there's a lot of discussion. But candidly, as I read this passage, because he presumably was a foreshadowing, a warning of what was going to happen to these uh, Egyptians as prisoners and so forth, uh, and the language to me, uh, it talks about buttocks and covers, so I think that, that uh, scholastic argument falls on deaf ears in this, in this regard. Notice that the issue here, the judgment is on the, uh, Egypt. See, part of what Isaiah has and will more hammer on 
is that the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria. And Isaiah is prophesying essentially, he, he'll talk to, uh, to Ephraim or whatever, but his real focus, his real burden is for Judah to learn from the failure of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Hezekiah, fearing what's happened in the northern kingdom, was seeking alliances with Egypt and so forth. And you'll, you'll need to understand that as we get through some of these passages because God is saying to Hezekiah, don't sweat Assyria. And making an alliance with Egypt is going to get you nowhere because they're not going to cut it either. Your alliance needs to be with the God of Israel. And indeed, they really come right up to the brink, and we'll get into that story when the time comes. But, but uh, part of the thrust of Isaiah is to one hand, focus on the judge, you know, Assyrian judgment to the northern kingdom. And he, he talks about how they're going, you know, they're, they're going to create a lot of havoc. But, it, but also, Judah will be delivered from Assyria. Judah is going to fall into judgment later. What, a hundred, over a hundred years later? The northern kingdom fell in 722. The southern kingdom, Judah, fell in 606. But not to Assyria, to Babylon. Now what's amazing about Isaiah, and we're going to get that here in chapter 21. Isaiah, here again, he did this back in chapter 13 and 14. He's going to do it again in chapter 21. He's going to talk about the fall of Babylon. You and I read that, and it's amazing, because it prophesied the fall of Babylon. Let me tell you what makes it even more amazing. He wrote this over 100 years before Babylon existed. I mean, as a, as a kingdom. It was a little troublesome city uh, that was a pawn of Assyrian politics at the time Isaiah wrote. And he's describing to his readers the fall of a kingdom yet to be established. Must have been tough reading, huh? Chapter 21. The burden of the desert of the sea. And that's a strange, <laughs> strange phrase. But uh, it, the passage will become clear as we go. As whirlwinds in the Negev pass through, so it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land, a grievous vision is declared unto me, a treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously. That's a phrase Isaiah is going to use again and again. And the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. With all its sighing have I made to cease. Now what he's going to be talking about here is the fall of Babylon. But what's amazing is he's talking about the two nations that will ultimately conquer Babylon. Assyria is extant at this point. You know, they're a hundred years later going to be conquered by Babylon. Babylon's going to rise to a major empire, roughly 606 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Karshemesh. It's 539, something, you know, short of a hundred years. When Babylon falls to whom? To the Medes and the Persians. Right? Notice what Isaiah is saying here in verse 2. Go up, O Elam. Elam is the forebear from which the Persians descend. Besiege, O Media. He defines here, if you know your tribal labels, Medes and Persians. Which raises another issue. Those of you that are serious about your Bible study need to really gain a command of Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 7, 8, and 9, we have the flood of Noah. In Genesis chapter 10, we have the genealogy of his sons. Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, leave the boat, build families and tribes. And Genesis 10 lays out the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the descendants of Noah. All those names are worth your study. Any good, competent commentary will take you through them. 
But it's worth learning those names because throughout the Scripture, prophets will deal with nations by their tribal names. Why do they do that? Because names change through time. What was Constantinople is now Istanbul, right? What was Elam was Persia and then Iran. See, you can change the name of your country. You can't change the name of your ancestors. You see? So a more reliable, comfortable tag as to who you're talking about is to speak of them by the labels of their ancestors. If I say the descendants of Jacob, you know who I mean. If I speak of the descendants of whomever. See? So that's why when you get to Ezekiel 38 and he talks so intensely about Magog, you've got to track back to Genesis 10. You'll discover who Magog was. And then by doing some homework on Josephus and others, you'll discover that Magog was the forebear of the tribes called the Scythians, which in turn settled north of the Caucasus Mountains and became the progenitors of the people that you and I know as the Russians, the true Russians. If you talk about Mitzrayim, that's the biblical name for Egypt, and so on. So if you're serious about your Bible study, you'll want to gain a good familiarity with Genesis 10. Now, what's interesting here... Isaiah is doing that when he, in verse 2, he says, Go up, O Elam. Why is he calling it Elam? Here's the interesting thing. The name Persia had not been invented yet. That comes later. See, if you do your homework, you know Elam is Persia. What you may not realize is Persia wasn't Persia when Isaiah was writing. You follow me? So, on the one hand, it may seem kind of cumbersome to the new student. Gee, that was kind of hard to master. Not really, because you go through Genesis 10, get a tape or a study guide, and make a little list. There's not that many, a dozen that's going to be critical to you. And you can get familiar with those. You hear Tagarma, House of Tagarma. The Armenians today call themselves the House of Tagarma, and so on. Okay. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. Now, at the time he said this, this probably was puzzling. To you and I, looking back, we're flabbergasted because he names the two nations that became a coalition that successfully unseated the most powerful empire the world had seen to that day, the Babylonian Empire. And he says all of this before the Babylonian Empire existed. Fascinating to me. Just fascinating. That's just the beginning. Because when we get to chapter 44 and 45, God, through Isaiah, is going to write a letter to a guy by the name of Cyrus, 150 years before he's born. And this letter is going to outline his career. It's going to explain how the writer of the letter knew that Cyrus would conquer the world empire called Babylon, and he tells him how he's going to do it. And he says, because I'm calling you by name, you'll know that I'm the God of Israel, even though you don't know who I am. And when Cyrus conquers, I should say Ugbaru is general, really, conquered Babylon, in October 17th, the, uh, Cyrus makes his grand entrance, Okay? And he's presented the scroll of Isaiah and tradition, Talmudic tradition says it was Daniel that presented it to him. He finds this letter and he's so impressed, wouldn't you be, <laughs> that he turns them loose. He turns the slave, you know, the Hebrews loose. That's a matter of history. A matter of history. And uh, we'll get into all that in detail when we get to chapter 44 and 45. But that's again this period, you see. Anyway, moving on. Verse 2 is kind of fun. Let's go to verse 3. 3. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me like the pangs of a woman who travaileth. 
Let me just pause there for a moment. Those of you that are diligent students of Daniel, Matthew, Revelation, you name it, you can't help but notice, for some reason, all the prophets that talk about the end time and the tribulation that's coming and all of that, always describe it like a woman in sorrow. And the word, remember Jesus says, these are the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24. But the word in the Greek isn't just sorrows, it's birth pangs. And it's interesting in Revelation, Jesus himself in Matthew, etc., always talks about the end time, the time of the day of the Lord's earth, in terms of a woman who's traveling in birth. And we can draw inferences from that. Those pains are distinctive in the sense that they gradually increase in frequency and intensity. And that seems to be the main thought. But it's interesting how the very use of phrase is Isaiah and the Minor Prophets and the Gospels. and See, it's interesting. That's, what, that's one of those things that as the more you read the Bible, the more you'll be sensitive to the fact that we've got one author here, not 40, a supernatural author. An author who has hovered, that has brooded, if you will, over every detail of the text. But moving on. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me like the pangs of a woman who traveleth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted. Fearfulness appalled me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. Eat and drink. Arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield." For that hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. One of the things to be sensitive to is that Isaiah is capable of extreme sarcasm. And when you really understand Daniel chapter 5, and again, I don't want to get into detail this time because we'll spend time on that when we get to Isaiah 40, but just to give you the rough feeling, Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's died, Daniel's in retirement, the profligate son, Belshazzar's running Babylon. And he knows the Persians are camped and they're enemies, but he's so arrogant, he, he trusts on the moat and the wall. The wall was substantial. Chariot races, four, five, six abreast. The wall was non-trivial. And the defenses were considered impregnable. So instead of defending himself, he threw a party. And in the middle of the party, we have the famous incident of the handwriting on the wall that they call Daniel out of retirement to interpret. And we'll get into all that. Well, while they're having this party, unknown to them... Ugbaru, the Persian general, had sent one division upriver to dam the Euphrates, divert it into the canal system, which they had controlled by then, lowered the, the moat, and they went in under the city and took the city without a battle. We'll get into that at later, so I don't want to spend too much time on now. But it's in that spirit, you see, Isaiah might be being very sarcastic here, saying, Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, anoint the shield. In other words, if you put a sarcastic tone to this, it fits what was happening as detailed in Daniel 5. We'll unravel that a little later in Isaiah anyway, so I don't want to double up. We'll just keep moving here. Verse 7 does have a translational problem. It says, He saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. It turns out that's an unfortunate, clumsy handling of some messy Hebrew, and what it really says is simply, there is a troop coming two by two. Double column. And you can't tell that from the English because of the way the Hebrew has been rendered. If you have a good commentary or good notes, it probably will comment on that. Not a big deal, but just as, a, as an aside. Now, verse 8, And he cried as a lion, My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set at my post whole nights. And uh, this allusion to the lion 
your first thought, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not exactly. The lion here, more appropriately, might be viewed as the lion of uh, Daniel chapter 7. Something else we'll study shortly uh, will be the famous visions of Daniel, Daniel 2 and 7. Basic stuff. Should be up to speed on that. But in Daniel 7, God gives Daniel an overview of all Gentile history in the form of a series of beasts that appear to rise out of the sea. And the first one is a lion-like. It's a lion with wings, but it's a lion-like thing. It refers to Babylon. And so the idiom here of that lion, strangely enough, by the Holy Spirit, would link more to the lion of Daniel 5. But what makes that provocative, Daniel wasn't alive yet, so Isaiah's use of idiom ties to Daniel only by the Holy Spirit. Follow me? But we'll move on. My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set my post the whole nights. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men and a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, get this, friends, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Now see, here Babylon is named. I've inferred that from verse 1 by looking ahead. But the whole thing does refer to Babylon. But lest there be any doubt that we're allegorizing or something, verse 9 nails it. Babylon. But the thing that's interesting, if you're a student of Jeremiah and Revelation 18, you remember this strange phrase the angel uses. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. What a strange way to say things. You'll see it here, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Isaiah 18. I mean, in Revelation 18. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Great, but the next phrase, if you're sharp, creates a problem. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Let me give you a technicality that's very important to you. When Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon, he did not destroy her idols, he worshiped at them. It was his style when he conquered a people was to honor their temples. That was just his way. Nebuchadnezzar did differently. When he conquered a people, he took their religious artifacts home as trophies for his museum. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.